Thank you for tuning in to the Crossover Podcast. We hope this message inspires you and grows your faith. To learn more about Crossover, visit our website at crossovernorman.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Crossover Norman. Enjoy the message. If you love Jesus, say I do. That's what I like to hear. Listen, my name is Brent Russell. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my... Okay, got one fan. Uh, I got my lovely wife up here, Caroline, leading us to the throne. Come on now. This is my family, maybe. Crossover's my family, yes. Come on now. Where's the... There we go. So, my beautiful wife, Caroline, this is my oldest son, Revan, down here. He is five. We got River Jude with the mad flow going on. He's three. And then we got Bodie Job, the little curly head boy up there. He is just cheesing away. Looks just like his mama. And yes, we got baby number four on the way. What in the world? I mean, what were we thinking? All right, for about two months, we will have five. We will have four kids, five and under. Oh my goodness! Praise be to Jesus. Listen, we're gonna need some babysitters up in here. Okay, um, they're already eating all of my paycheck, so I can't pay you with money, but I can pay you with prayers and pizza. Okay. Like, just come hang out with the Russell family, and it's going to be amazing. But listen, six years ago, just to kind of give you some insight on, on what has happened, six years ago, God called my wife and I out of our familiar. He called us out of what we knew. He called us out of what we were comfortable with uh, to plant a ministry on the University of Oklahoma, and all we had was a prayer and a calling. Like, we had nothing, we had nobody, and, and my wife and I, we went and hit every coffee shop for the next three months telling people about this ministry that we were going to start, and then the very first crossover that we ever had, had was 80 people. Like, that was just a blessing in itself, and God showed up in miraculous ways year after year. God keeps on bringing people year after year, and look at what God brought tonight, amen, hallelujah, God ain't done. Students, where you are sitting at right now is because of the labor of hundreds of students before you. Alumni in years past who took upon their life the calling that God had upon them to to serve in a ministry and to reach this campus for Christ. And they took this calling and they placed it into this ministry and they started on the welcome team or they started on the outreach team or they were on the prayer team or the media team or if they were extra holy. What's the extra holy one, guys? The set of a teardown team. If you want an extra brick in heaven in your mansion... Okay, the setup and teardown team is the place to be. But because of all of that, because of people who have taken their time, their efforts, their prayers, their sacrifices, and they reach this campus for Christ, we are able to be now, it looks like we have 15, I don't know, 1,600 people here tonight just praising Jesus. And my question to you is, What would this ministry look like in two or three years if you accepted that call? 
if you trusted God in, in your calling and you had a passion to reach this campus for Jesus, where would we look like, what would we look like in just a couple years from now if that happened? Because listen, yeah, we might be the quote-unquote biggest ministry on campus, but guess what? We still have 29,000 other students to reach, amen? God's not done yet, and I don't want y'all to be done yet either, all right? Let's get into this mission together, and let's go reach this campus for Christ, amen? Amen. Thanks, Brent. Right? I don't know why I did that, but I love you. Listen, as I dive into a, a series here, is it all right if I preach a little bit tonight? It's been a couple months, all right? I got to preach a little bit. Uh, we're starting in a new series. You ready for the title? You ready for it? First Peter. You're welcome. All right? It's a First Peter uh, series. I'm real creative on titles, but I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself. Amen. But let me tell you how I'm going to navigate this tonight. Like, I have a multiple-week series on 1 Peter, and I'm going to go over some of the main topics that I believe are going to be able to penetrate our hearts and our souls. Um, and I think that Peter is, I mean, I just love this book. It, it's literally changed my life. And this is how I'm going to flow. This is my navigation through this, is, is I want to write, I want to be able to speak to you like the historical context on what's going on. I want to say who's writing it, why they're writing it, who they're writing it to, what are they writing it for. Uh, but then I want to make this big switch, and I want to be able to, it's called contextualizing. I want to be able to, to point out, like, how does this, what is going on in this scenario, how can that apply to us here in Oklahoma, in a college campus that might not be saved, and we're trying to save this campus? What does that look like here in 2022? So let me set the scene for tonight. What's going on here is Peter, he is writing to these people and he calls them exiles. These are, these are Christians that are scattered out in these Roman colonies. And some people call them exiles, some scripts they call them foreigners, other texts they call them strangers. And my favorite, he is, they call them aliens, not like E.T. phone home aliens, but like aliens as in like you're not at your home Yet, you're in a strange land that is not meant for you. They are foreigners in a place that is not their final destination. Now, they might have grown up in this place, but this is not the place for them because something has happened to them. They become strangers because, and, relation, and aliens because they started a relationship with Jesus and everything has changed. They're feeling like aliens and foreigners even in their hometowns because their relationship with Jesus was starting to go against the grain of society. I know some of you in here, I know a lot of your testimonies in here, you got saved maybe in, in high school and even going home felt weird because your parents might not have been saved, maybe all your friends weren't saved and, and everything kind of started clashing together, like home didn't even, even feel like home anymore, you felt like a stranger. Well, Peter here, I believe he started catching on to something. I, I think of Peter as like a, like a forethinker. I, I feel like he, his prayers, like God kind of gave him visions of the future. And I think that he started seeing that, that because of this against the grainness and being a Christian in this world at this time, instead of these Christians being bold in their faith, he started seeing that people started shrinking back. Everybody say shrink back. I think they started shrinking back in their faith because when they showed their faith in this area, 
It would cause some commotion in this world. And Peter, the encourager, he saw this and he knew that, that they needed something. They needed this, this one big thing in their life that they were lacking and it was hope. They needed hope in their life to be able to survive the world that they lived in. Because they needed to know something that only in their difference from the world was the only way that they could make a difference in this world. Only their difference from this world was the only way that they could make a difference in this world. And Peter started seeing that there was a shift in culture. And this culture was going to make it harder for Christians to be able to, to be Christians. And it was going to be harder for Christians to be closet Christians anymore. They couldn't just say that they were Christians and not be able to walk like Christians because this culture started making things harder. And this is why he could foresee it is because he started seeing that Nero was rising in power. If you ever hear about Nero, Nero was a no-go for Christians. And during his early reign, you read and you, the little historical fact is like most of the politicians didn't actually agree with him at first. Like they didn't even like him at first and he would take things to the politicians and they would shoot him down and, and miraculously something happened that catapulted his reign. It was this little thing called the Roman fire. And for some reason this fire happened and it burnt many things up and the politicians saw that the only way for them to rise back to power was to, to get on the coattails of Nero and let his reign rule and let it rise. And this was the start of the terror of Nero. Now, a group of people was blamed for this fire. Can you guess who that was? This little group that people in the Roman times, they considered to be cannibalistic incestual cult is what they were labeled at this time they were cannibalistic because they would go in the, it would have these prayer times this religious group they go have these prayer times and during this prayer time they would talk about how that they would eat the flesh of somebody and drink his blood and his name might have been Jesus right but they were also incestual because when they would meet one another in the streets, they'd be like, hey, brother, hey, sister, right? That's how they talked back then. I don't know. That's how I talked. What up, bro? Right? They would talk about this is their brother, this is sister. They'd greet them with a holy kiss and a hug. They would call their, their husband, their, their brother in Christ. They'd call their sister, they'd call their wife, their sister in Christ. And guess who gave them this dirty title? It was no other than Nero himself. I would say that Nero was it's almost like the devil incarnate. Like he just hated them. We also see later on later on down the road with Nero that he was the one who would actually pull Christians out of their house and kill them. He was the one that started bringing them into the Colosseum to have lions shred them. He was the one that would have have Christians come and burned at a stake at his house to be candles for his parties that we that he would hold. This guy was ruthless. But see Peter wasn't an idiot. He saw where this rule was going. He saw where his power and his wrath of Christians were was going along and he knew that Christians for them to shine now they needed to have hope. They didn't need to be hiding. They needed to have hope. Now listen, this is what was going to be hard for them though. The shift in culture started, started rubbing off the wrong way on these Christians because Roman rule, they were polytheistic. They had multiple gods. 
They had, you know, God of the air and God of the crops, God of the rain, God of sex, right? Some of y'all haven't even listened to my sermon until I said sex, like I understand that, right? They had all these gods that they had to pay respects to. So when they would go to the market, they would have to get some incense and they'd have to they would have to throw it on the fire to burn and pay homage to the God of the crops. When they would have uh, just conversations with people in the streets, something would, hap- ha- would happen and one of the persons would be like, well, praise be to the God of war. And everybody like, yeah, praise be to the God of war. They couldn't even have these conversations without these gods uh, being brought up. And this was where Christians started becoming exposed because Christians, they were very aware of their relationship with God, and they were very aware of the first commandment that, that you shall have no other God except for me. So when they would go to even to the market, to the grocery store, they couldn't go pay homage to the God of the crops because that wasn't God. And when they would have conversations, they couldn't hide it anymore because when someone said, well, praise be to the God of war, they couldn't say, well, praise be to the God of war because that wasn't their God. They couldn't even go and go to the public bathhouse. They used to take baths together. That's weird in the first place, right? But they couldn't even go take baths in the bathhouse like everybody else did because they knew that they were not to covet their neighbor's wife or their neighbor's husband. They knew that they, could, they needed to be holy because God was holy. They knew that their lives, if they chose to act like, to look like, to love like Jesus, was going to cause some attention to them. Why? Because they didn't serve other people's gods the way that they did. And, it, and they would get mad at you. They would get mad at you, like maybe some of us, anybody a, a fast driver up in here on the highway? Come on now. All right, you're going a good 85 down the highway, if it's an 80, come on now, right? Or a 70, I can't remember. But you see a Honda in the fast lane next to a semi going the same speed limit, you know what I'm saying? And you're about a mile away and you just do the Christian hello, you just flicker your lights a little bit at them, right? They don't move. You get a little closer, you do a little bit more of a heavy wave, do a lot more lights at them, they still don't move, right? Anybody feeling the anger, like just boil? Like I'm feeling it, all right, I'm feeling it. Get a little closer to them and it's just like they don't care that they have 32 cars behind them and you doubt their salvation, am I right? Come on now, (laughs) right? Am I just the only one? All right, everybody take a deep breath, all right? But the way that you feel right now, time's at about 30 and that's what these people would feel when, they went, when you wouldn't serve the gods that they served. They looked down on you. They mocked you. They shamed you. And we see that these Christians, they might even um, were kicked out of certain uh, cities or groups. Or eventually we see later on in the text that, that they might even get killed later because of their faith. And see, Peter started seeing this. He started seeing that Christians needed hope to keep living the good, the good life, the life for Jesus. They needed courage. They needed this one thing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I can see a little bit of a parallel between that time and this time today. I, felt, I feel like it sounds a little bit similar, like to be sold out living for Jesus, encouraging people in Jesus, being a Christian on this campus you might not be praised by many people. 
Like it might even be the opposite of that. Like when you try to think future tense and you try to think of, man, where is Christianity going? How is it shined out like right now? How does the news report about Christianity? You can start maybe wondering, like, is the world winning? When you look at politics and culture, I'm telling you, for a lot of us, especially the last you know, couple years, you start shrinking back on maybe exposing your faith because you're afraid to stand on certain matters that you know that the Bible expresses. Or you're afraid of saying something wrong and getting blasted for it. Anybody out there? And listen, students, the only way that this has changed from this day and age to our day and age, the only thing that has changed is that they have relabeled the gods of the world. They served maybe the god of war and the god of the air. I don't know what they served, but tell me that we haven't made this world like, like we are our own gods. We serve the god of self. I can do that. I can do that. I can climb the corporate ladder. I can train harder. I can be this. I can succeed. Maybe some people, we have the God of Friday night. Do I need to explain that? All right? Maybe they still have the God of sex. But here's what's happening is when you don't serve their gods the way that they do, when you don't do life the way that they do, when you don't, when you go against the grain of society, there will be an instant us and them separation between us. Now, while we might not be martyred, we might not be drugged into a coliseum, you can't tell me that when you live a sold-out life for Christ in college, there's not going to be some persecution. You can't tell me that there's, there are moments in your life on campus that, that you feel it would just be easier to maybe fail to one of these other gods than to present Jesus at that moment. Or even worse, some of us, if we can be honest, we have shrunk back so far that we just don't serve any God right now. Now listen, I believe that many of us right now, we can put ourselves in this context. And when Peter here is encouraging his friends, his exiles, these aliens, for the only way for them to overcome their fear is to have hope. My prayer is tonight that we can find that hope. My, my prayer is that we can understand and we can put ourselves in this context and say, like, why is he writing this letter to these people? And I hope that we can be encouraged to be faithful. I, I, I pray that we can be strengthened when we are feeling the ramifications of our faith in this world. And I hope that he can inject us with a hope that sustains us to be a light because only in hope can you be the light of this world. What does 1 Peter say about hope? What can we learn about hope? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and it says this. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What I learned from this text, first and foremost, about hope is that God caused it. 
Like we see because of his great mercy, we are born again into a a living hope from Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the foundation of everything about Christianity. If you ever wondered about Christianity, this is the monumental thing about that we live on. Is that Jesus loved us so much that he came and he died for us so we can have an everlasting life with him. It gives us all of our hope that we will have an eternity with him. This is our living hope, is that we will have an eternity with him in the heavenly place greater than we could ever imagine or even comprehend. It was only by his great mercy that we have this hope. And this is what this means. His great mercy is this, is when we entered into this world, we were separated from God. We deserved hell. We deserved eternal, eternity in hell and being suffered and, and the Bible calls it weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the Bible says that we deserve that. But Jesus, being rich in mercy, meaning that he could have punished us if he wanted to, and we even deserve to, but Jesus offers us something different. He offers us a different path, a path to have a relationship with him, to have an eternity in heaven with him, to have fellowship with other believers as well. And and it's only because of Jesus. Now, how can we obtain that? Now, I I don't know if you're reading the same text as I am reading, but I don't see any prerequisites to how to obtain this faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've heard about every excuse in the world. Now, Brent, listen, like, I'm just not smart enough. I just have not read enough Bible. There's no way that I can be saved. No, listen, God, God loves you. He died for you just where you're at. Brent, I have committed so many sins in my life. Like, there's no way that, like, he could, he could cover all of them. No, 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 listen. Like, like, he loves you just the way that you are. No, Brent, like, listen, I am so broken I am so, like, just tired. I'm so this and that. And, like, I'm, I'm like, listen, like, Jesus loves you just the way that you are. The Bible simply says this. If that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. How freeing is that? If you ever doubt your eternity, confess Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart. If you ever have any pain or panic or you wonder, it's just like, Jesus, listen, like I need you to be the Savior of my life and you will be saved. Now, why is this big for Peter to communicate to his readers? Why is it big for us to even go, go over this? Because when you absorb that, And when you meditate long enough on what Jesus saved you from, and you meditate on what Jesus saved you to, you won't be able to shrink back in your faith. Because his gift is greater than any other God that this world can offer to you. His gift is a salvation that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. See, anything that this world can offer you, it'll fade. Money will fade. Looks will fade. Unless you're like me, I'm just like a fine wine, all right? Okay, I'm bald, but I still look good, all right? My wife thinks so. Faux kids, all right? (laughs) Minds fade. 
everything fades in this world, but your salvation from now until eternity does not fade. And Peter is saying, because of Jesus and his great mercy, you don't need to fade back from your faith. You can lean into it because what the world has to offer you doesn't compare to what Jesus is offering you. But it also means this as well. Whatever persecution and whatever hell you can bring my way because of my faith in Jesus doesn't even compare from the hell that he saved me from. Throw it at me, world, because Jesus is greater than anything you can throw at me. And when you realize how merciful your Father is that rips you out of the depths of hell and sets you at the right seat of Him in heaven for all of eternity, you won't want to shrink back in your faith. You want to shine bright in your faith and bring other people with you and tell them that, you know, you don't have to be stuck in this world anymore because you have a loving Father that loves you so much and is merciful and He wants to rip you out of the depths of hell as well and put you right next to us. Amen and hallelujah. And when you realize that, you don't want to shrink back. You want to stand firm because his gift is greater. He causes it, but it doesn't stop there. We see in verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We see that it doesn't stop there. We see that God also guards our hope. I love this verse. I love this verse. I think this is a two-way intersection here. First, when I see this, I think when God guards our hope, he guards our salvation, and it just instantly takes me to the Roman 8 passage, for I'm sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, And when I read this, I think that these believers who are really facing persecution at this time, when maybe everything had been ripped away from them, maybe, maybe their friends, maybe their positions, maybe their money, maybe their respect, and for them to hear that, you know what, no matter what you are going through now, it doesn't matter because nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. They can take many things away from you, but they can never take your hope away in Jesus. They might take your pride, they might take your confidence, they may take everything away from you, but they will never take Jesus. And some people maybe need to know that now. A lot of y'all, you're uprooted from your homes and everything is new and everything is kind of crazy and you're trying to find your rhythm, your rhythm. You might be new to college, you might be making new friends, but listen, God is immovable, he is unshakable, he is unwavering and when you are his child, you are his forever and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Which leads me into the second intersection which is huge for these people because nothing that they had done could separate them from the love of their father. Now, who is writing this? This is Peter. Peter was the right hand of Jesus, amen. He was one of the 12 disciples that loved him, that took care of Jesus, that made sure things were good for Jesus, that protected Jesus. This was Peter. So he was writing this and we learned that on the day of the Last Supper, him and Jesus were having a conversation and, and Peter was trying to understand exactly what was about to happen to Jesus and, and he was kind of bowing up a little bit, showing how prideful he was and, and Jesus says, listen, 
like actually by the, by the dawn's time before the rooster crows, you will actually deny me three times. And later that evening, Jesus gets taken away by the Roman soldiers to go and do the, the biggest miracle that has ever happened in this world. And when they took Jesus away, they started looking for his followers. And people asked Peter, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter's like, I, I don't know that guy. Someone else is like, do you know Jesus? And Peter's like, I don't know who that was. A little girl even asked Peter, hey, hey, I've seen you with Jesus. You know him. And Peter's like, I don't know him. And at that moment, that rooster crows and Peter realizes that he just denied Jesus three times. And it says that he ran away and he wept and he fell down and he was just mortified. And he was telling these people like, hey, I get it. So when he's writing this to some individuals that might have been denying Jesus for the last couple months, maybe the last couple years, maybe their lives didn't look like Jesus, and the shame had come down deep down in their souls because of the choices that they have been doing. And Peter's like, listen, I have been there. I have also denied Jesus. But at some point in his life, Peter realized that his sin was not as great as God's love in his life. And those individuals that were locked into their culture, that were denying Jesus and maybe taking up other gods and living in shame, if they could take their eyes off of their denial and put their eyes back on Jesus who would never leave them and never forsake them, then their lives would transform. Nothing that they did, no sin, no shame that they had done in their past could, could rip away God's love from Him. Students, I don't know about you, but I thank God that he is the protector of my salvation because I know that I would have been a horrible protector of my own. God protects it. But lastly, we see the last point is in verse 7 through 9. And it says this, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, and may be found in result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Without a test, how will you ever truly know where you are at? If you never got tested in calculus class, which 99.9% .9 of us will never use again, all right? How will you ever know if you need calculus? Can I get an amen? Who, who just hates calculus, right? My goodness, business calculus, horrible, all right? How will you know if your faith is real if your faith is never tested? There are many things promised to us in the Bible but, but a trial-free life is not one of them. Hard times, I promise you, will come and go. But my question is this. If you graded your life over the last two years, would you say that when trials came, did you go through trials with a living hope that no matter what happens, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going forever. I know what Jesus has done for me. I'm gonna be a light in a dark place. No matter what is happening right now, I'm going to live with this hope. Or did you have a type of attitude that maybe wasn't a living hope, but maybe it was a dead hope, and you surrendered to the trial 
And that trial just defeated you. I love verse 7. That the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may result in what? In praise and glory. I know some of you are like, how am, I, am I reading this right? Like, how can I praise Jesus even in the midst of a trial? You want to know why that this is hard for hope? Why is it so hard for us to think this way? Why is it hard for us to even fathom praising Jesus when school sucks, when, when friends backstab you, when bad breakups happen, or if something terrible happens in your life, and maybe you're even being mocked for your faith? You want to know why praise and honor and glory is hard for us? Because this is the first thing out of these three things that, that, that we are responsible for. Because we're not responsible for saving ourselves because, because Jesus does that. We're not responsible for keeping our salvation because Jesus does that. But when we are supposed to give praise and honor for it, that is on us. Now listen, I'm just going to end with a little illustration here. Is that when I was in seminary in my early 20s, um, I was going through a rough time and um, my friends actually were, they were backstabbing me a little bit, all right, and um, I had just broken up with my girlfriend of two years because she wasn't my, my honey boo-boo over here, right? I was waiting for the right one, all right, and um, I actually was, I, I was dabbling a little bit in depression in all honesty. It was hard for me to sleep, and um, I was working 65 hours a week and getting paid like a quarter an hour, it seemed like. And I remember one night I was laying in bed. I was depressed. I felt like the, the ball of anxiety on my, on, my, on my chest. I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't sleep. So I turned on my TV, which was like the glass round TV, not the flat screen, because who can afford that, okay? And I couldn't afford cable, so I had the bunny, bunny ears antennas. Yes, I promise. I was broke eating my ramen noodles. Amen, hallelujah. All right. But I was laying there, and this, the only thing that was on was how to mine silver. Yes, that's how low I got, 3 o'clock in the, mil, in, the, in the morning. And they talked about, like, chiseling it away. They put it in this, like, big old spoon, and they would put it over the fire. And that spoon heated up, and you saw that the silver started to liquefy. And I'm like, I'm semi-dozing off, and then... The guy started saying, well, see, now the miner, he will start sifting away some of the debris, and the rest of the debris is actually going to flame and burn up. And God, like, taps me on the shoulder in the middle of this night. He goes, listen, that's what you're going through right now. Like, your trial is like a silver miner, and I'm the miner, and you are the, the silver, and I am starting to sift out some of the things in your life that probably shouldn't be there. I'm starting to burn up some of the infirmities in your life that shouldn't be there. Yeah, I know it's painful, and yeah, I know it's, it's this, but I, I promise you it's necessary. And I was like, okay, Lord, like, all right, man, that makes sense, all right? And I still wasn't like real happy about it, but I, I felt a little peace, all right? Okay, Lord, yeah, I know that I don't know what's going on, but like, all right, I, I feel you, bro, right? And I'm just about to turn the TV off. And this miner says, in the last stage of mining and refining this silver is 
once they are done completing the silver, the final test is when they look down at the silver, the miner can see a perfect reflection of himself. And God was like, like drop the mic, right? Because he's like, hello, I'm still here. I wasn't finished yet, Brent. Like, I'm just like the silversmith. I'm, I'm removing these things and I'm burning up these things. I need you to hang with me, Brent, for just a little while because this is when I know that you are completed is when I can look at your life and I can see myself in it. And I was like, chills, gooseys. Like, I go, look at gooseys right now. Like, Holy Spirit moment. I was like, okay. And it like invigorated me. And like, I, at that moment, I was like, praise be to Jesus. Like, like you're working in me. You care about me n- enough that you can, you can put me through this so I can look more like you, so I can love like you, so I can encourage people like you. And that's when it was. Trials are finished when you can, Jesus can look down at my life and see a perfect re- reflection of himself. We can turn our trials into praise when we know God's process isn't to hurt us, but it's for us to trust Him and become more like Him. Amen. Students, listen, hope is something that we all need. We need it more now than ever in the culture that we are, we are walking in right now. But hope starts on the cross and, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through that, we have a living hope of a future with him in a place that is better than we could ever imagine. That our final home in, in, in this world is just temporary, but we have a forever home with him in heaven. And God protects it. No one can take it away, not even yourself. And for that, we give praise to Jesus. Even in the good times and even in the hard times, trials come and go, but they have a purpose, and that purpose is for Jesus to look at our lives and see himself. Amen.